I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I'm Fiona Davison. And in today's show, we're going to look at how to be a low-carbon gardener. But in order to really understand how growers can have an impact on climate change, we're going to start somewhere a little bit more hot and humid. Particularly early in the morning, you get this deep, earthy scent. It's damp and humid all the time. Occasionally, you get like bursts of humidity as you walk around the space. We have some very shy tree frogs and these little uh, tropical partridges that run around your feet and they are so cute. Meet Catherine Cutler. You might think she's describing somewhere far away from the UK. But in fact, she's talking about a rainforest, but one that's in Cornwall. She's the biomes manager at the Eden Project, an educational charity that's home to the world's largest captive indoor rainforest. She'll be taking us inside these iconic geodesic domes in just a second. A rainforest is one of the most effective places for storing carbon. They're known as carbon sinks. I'll let Catherine explain more. So the rainforests, they actually control the climate for our entire planet. They absorb lots of carbon dioxide, they give off lots of oxygen, they make clouds above them, and then those clouds reflect the excess heat back out into space. So the rainforests are intrinsically important in controlling the climate for our whole planet. We're talking about storing carbon in a place where basically it's stored and kept so that then it's not being re-released back into the atmosphere. Um, So trees and the the woody part of a tree is storing lots and lots of carbon for a very long period of time, which is what we want to do. We want to reduce the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide, CO2. And our gardening habits can have a really big impact on our carbon footprints. Although we're nurturing plants... As gardeners, we can also contribute to climate change, whether it's the fuel that powers our tools, the peat in our compost, or digging soil that releases carbon into the atmosphere. If we aren't careful, we can actually add to the problems affecting our planet. So in this show, we're exploring how to become eco-friendly growers, and in our own way, low-carbon advocates. We'll be hearing how to garden without disturbing the soil from no-dig expert Charles Dowding, getting some top tips from Sally Nex, author of How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. And I'm really looking forward to learning about one of the original environmentalists in this week's Hidden Horticulturist feature. 
but let's start by getting inspired by the humid climes inside the Eden Project's tropical biome. You walk into a space which you're not really sure if you're indoors or whether you're outdoors and you look up and you realise that 50 metres above your head there is this enclosed canopy, you're inside a bubble. But really, you just feel like you're in a forest. When you're looking around in the rainforest, and as you probably would have expected, it's nearly all green. And then dotted in amongst that are these hits of colour. A lot of rainforest plants are pollinated by birds, and so they often have bright red flowers. And you think about hibiscus. They're a classic, well-known plant, so you'll get the hummingbirds coming to the hibiscus. And then they usually get these little spots, so the orchids often grow up in the trees. So you get little spots of orchids flowering just incidentally as you walk through, which are beautiful. So there was a real need to create a rainforest biome because most people haven't had the opportunity to explore and to enjoy a rainforest. And we have so many things that we use here living in the UK, but things that we're using that come from the tropics. So to be able to actually see and understand those plants and part of it, as well as showing people the plants, is actually allowing people to explore a little bit more, to understand the journey for those plants, for those products, and the implications of those plants and the production of them. So we have, for example, an area which has all just been burnt and desolate, and a few soya plants are sometimes grown in there, to show actually what happens sometimes in tropical rainforest areas, where areas are cleared just to grow soya, and then that soya would be used to feed cattle, for instance. Obviously, housing a rainforest in Cornwall isn't necessarily ideal because it takes a lot of heating to look after it. So we work, the project as a whole works in many ways to try and reduce the amount of energy that we use because when you're using energy, you're often creating carbon dioxide, which you really don't want to do. So we have a computer-based system which controls the heating of the biome so that we can absolutely control it so that we're using minimum amount of energy that we can get away with. So we keep the temperatures as low as we can, but for the health of the plants, the biomes themselves are built in such a way that it's like a double layer, like they're double glazed. So they're very insulating and they're built in a way that they're set against the cliff. So when it is sunny, like a day like this, or in February, when it's freezing cold outside, all of the sun's rays come into the biome and the heat is absorbed onto the back cliff and then it's released through the night. So everything about the design of the biomes is there to ensure that we put in a minimum amount of energy to heat them. And this is something that people can think about at home with their own greenhouses, their own spaces, how to minimise the amount of energy that you use to heat that. And of course, if you're building something from scratch, that's the time to really think about it. But ensuring that your glass houses, for example, are insulated through the winter so that you're not heating basically the vacuum of space constantly thinking about the implications of what you're growing and whether you have to be growing those things at that time of year as well. For example, you could keep your chilli plants going right through the winter, but in actual fact, why do that? Why keep them heated? Why not start again in the spring growing fresh ones and they'll have a lot more vigour anyway and not have any pests on them. So it's a win-win all the way around. When we're gardening at Eden, we do a lot of the things that actually you could be doing at home. We're just doing it on a slightly bigger scale. So for instance, we make our own compost and making your own compost is a win-win in every possible direction. So first of all, we're using waste materials 
that certainly at home could quite possibly go into landfill and would be seriously bad for the environment because as well as giving off carbon, they actually would give off methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas. So making your own compost using all of your own food scraps and bits of cardboard, that sort of thing that's come packing things into your home, making your own compost, which then can be put around your plants and used to grow crops so yet you get much tastier food and much better plants growing. It's just a no-brainer, isn't it, really? We make about 150 tonnes of the stuff every year and we use any waste food from our restaurants as well. So we're just doing exactly what you would do at home. We also create a whole load of mulch. So if you're cutting down woody material, then we put that through a chipper and it then just sits for a while. And then we use that to mulch around our ornamental areas. So that reduces the amount of weeds growing as well. We don't use any peat here at Eden. Everybody knows that carbon is better left in the ground if that's where it is. So we use other alternative, more environmentally friendly substitutes. So no excuse for using peat, to be honest. I think working here at Eden, and I've been here for nearly 20 years, is in a sense has meant that I've also lived in a bubble, a bit like those biomes. <laughs> but I am very, very aware of the environmental impact of my life. And so things like trying to ensure that I don't take unnecessary journeys that I always car share and wanting to plant trees and wanting to manage ground in a sustainable way so there's a big movement towards a no dig type of approach so you're not releasing the carbon in the soil back into the atmosphere so it definitely by working here has affected the way that I think about managing spaces. Food for thought there from Catherine Cutler from the Eden Project. Catherine mentioned the need to keep peat in the ground, which is such an important issue in gardening. Peatlands hold more carbon than all the world's forests combined. And the UK is one of the world's top 10 countries in terms of peatland area. So there's a real urgent need for us gardeners to stop using peat-based composts. Someone who's really advocating this move to a peat-free existence is gardener and writer Sally Nex. She's the author of a new RHS book, called How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. Hi, Sally. Hello. Hi. It's lovely to be here. With a low carbon garden, peat seems an obvious place to start. So why should we care about not using peat in our gardens? So if we're going to talk about carbon sequestration, peat is one of the most important carbon sinks in the world, peat bogs. They're second only to oceans in terms of the amount of carbon that they can store. They have basically spent the last 10,000 years or so laying down organic matter, carbon, and all of that is held out of the atmosphere. That means that it's not contributing to global warming. Now, as gardeners, we are responsible for a good proportion of the amount of peat that's harvested out of the ground because it goes into potting composts. When you buy a bag of potting compost, it may actually not say on the bag at the moment that it does contain peat, but unless your bag of potting compost says very clearly on the front, peat free, you can be pretty sure that it contains on average about 50% actual peat. So you are directly contributing to extracting the carbon from those peat bogs and exposing it to the air 
in which case it oxidizes, it contributes carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, so it contributes to global warming. So we are directly contributing to global warming if we are using peat in our compost. And it's so easy to do without, to be quite honest. I mean, there is absolutely no reason why any of us should be using peat in the compost that we use anymore. There are very, very good peat-free brands these days. And even if you can't find a peat-free brand, then you can still make your own in your back garden from materials that you have probably already around you. That means that you don't get a plastic bag either with your compost. There really isn't any need anymore to ravage these peat bogs and to expose the carbon that they contain in order to grow our plants. We'll be discussing peat in more depth in a future episode, but let's talk about your book, How to Garden in a Low-Carbon Way. What made you want to write it? Oh, goodness. Well, it's one of those really unexpected things that you never really quite thought would happen or you didn't see coming, if you know what I mean. Because it all started a few years ago when I went to see my daughter collect her Duke of Edinburgh Bronze Award. The keynote speaker was a lady called Emily Penn. And she went round the world and she was monitoring the Pacific gyres, the uh, great big sort of whirlpools in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that tend to draw in anything like, for example, plastic waste, which might come its way. I hadn't even heard of Pacific gyres at that stage. And I just listened open mouthed as she described all these terrible sort of rafts of plastic which were floating around on the ocean and choking the wildlife. And it was just horrific. So I came back and I started to try and reduce the plastic, not just in my home, but particularly in my garden. And this turned into this incredible sort of campaign. The trouble is that once you start thinking about environmental ways to do one aspect of your gardening, it kind of starts to spiral and to all of these other areas of your gardening as well. So there are so many different aspects, how to manage your garden in a way that is kind to the environment in every single aspect of how you garden. It turns out, the more I looked into it, the more the the whole subject kind of mushroomed. (laughs) It was like I had all this information in my head kind of spilling out and I didn't know what to do with it. And basically it just all grew and grew and grew (laughs) until it eventually resulted in a book to somewhere to put all this stuff that was in my head. It was such a relief. (laughs) It's fantastic that you captured all that research. You know, your, your book is almost like a knowledge capture. You've captured all that research so that other people don't have to do all that experimentation and can, you know, pick it up. I should say at this point that a lot of the research has not been done formally on a garden scale. A lot of it is things that I've extrapolated that seem like reasonable conclusions from research that has been done into things like carbon sequestration in forestry and carbon emissions in agriculture. There's been lots of work into that kind of thing. And a lot of the examples, there are parallels in gardening. So, for example, I know there is a fact that ploughing releases a huge amount of carbon emissions from the carbon that's captured in the soil, just turning it over that deeply oxidises carbon. And so I think it's something like 9% of the emissions from agriculture are simply to do with ploughing the land, turning over the land. Now, there are obvious parallels between ploughing and double digging because the gardening equivalent of ploughing is double digging. So it's therefore reasonable to assume that you would be doing similar things by double digging your garden as you are by ploughing a field. It's about time, really, that we took gardens seriously as a potentially massive carbon sink. We tend to think of our gardens as just being kind of little patches of land that don't really matter very much in the grand scheme of things. 
But give or take a bit, there are about a million acres of gardens in the UK alone. So that's not even counting the gardens elsewhere in the world as well. Add that up, it's far more than we've set aside for nature reserves, for example, in this country. Add that up and you're talking about a really sizable area of land. And if we all were to play our part in making that land really work for the environment, we can make a heck of a big difference. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned about double digging because we're going to be hearing from Charles Dowding, that kind of no-dig guru, later in the show. Is that where you would start? If someone was wanting to start increasing their garden's capacity to be low carbon or be a carbon sink, is that where you'd start with how you dig? Yes, absolutely. Mm. Because the soil is something that we often overlook, I think, as gardeners. We sort of slightly take it for granted and we're, we're running after the beautiful plants and the pretty flowers and everything. Actually, what goes on under your feet is probably the most important thing in your garden. And certainly in terms of carbon storage, it most certainly is because it stores about 83% of the carbon in any garden. And the more organic matter that your ground contains, that your soil contains, the more bioorganisms, the more of these sort of tiny little microorganisms and mycorrhizal fungi and all that little sort of soil activity that's going on underneath your feet, the more of that that it contains, the more carbon it can store and hold on to. So the better your carbon sink, the more you look after your soil, the deeper it is, the better your garden is working as a carbon sink. I mean, if you're mulching, and particularly if, like me, you grow vegetables, you're constantly removing organic matter from your garden. And that organic matter kind of takes quite a long time to find its way back in. So that's why it's so important to mulch. That's how you return the organic matter that you remove back into your garden. So we talked about the soil, we talked about mulching. So is there anything else we can do? What about mowing our lawns? Oh, yes. A lot of the techniques that we use actively emit carbon. One of the worst is your lawnmower. There is a piece of research specifically on lawnmowers, which showed that in terms of pollution and carbon emissions, a lawnmower in one hour will emit as much pollution and carbon emissions as a car driving 93 miles, 150 kilometres. Whoa! Which is quite something when you think about it. And to be honest, I wouldn't really sit behind a car for 93 miles breathing in the exhaust. So why we would stand behind a lawnmower doing the same thing, I'm not quite sure. So one of the sort of most basic things to do in order to stop mowing your lawn, cancelling out all your good work on the carbon front elsewhere is to simply switch to either an electric mower or a battery-powered mower. Battery-powered mowers have their own problems because of the difficulties with recycling lithium, which is what the component of lithium-ion batteries are. But nonetheless, it's certainly a lot better than petrol. So that's the first step you can take. Then start mowing your lawn a little bit less often. Because what that does, you can mow every week if you want a bowling green lawn, but you will have no flowers there. You will have no ecosystem services in terms of nectar provision for wildlife and for pollinating insects and so on. And your lawn will not sequester very much carbon. You don't have to be too wild, if you like, for all of your lawn. But if you can find a patch right at the back of your lawn, back of the garden perhaps, to leave grow completely wild and stop mowing it altogether... What you'll find is that you get lots of really big, tall grasses, that you get fewer flowers, but your flowers will be much more diverse. So that's when you get the really tall wildflowers turning up. As you come towards the house, mow perhaps a little bit more often, but only maybe once a month. And then Mm. what you'll find is that your lawn grows about, you know, it grows longer than one would normally have it, but it still kind of looks a little bit more like a lawn. 
So keep the areas that you mow more often to a minimum, maybe path through those longer areas or a little area for just for picnicking outside, right outside your house kind of thing. Then have the middle of your garden a little bit longer and the right at the back of your garden a bit that you only mow once a year. And that will maximise your biodiversity. It will mean that you maximise also your carbon storage and you will minimise the amount of emissions and general sort of impact that you have from your actual mowing. Um, so it's a much more carbon friendly way to manage your lawn. Much more interesting too. Mm, that's fantastic. It's really nice to hear things you can do that are kind of positive. I do believe passionately that gardens can do something incredibly positive for the environment and in fact have been massively overlooked in terms of the value that they have. It's like a sort of concentrated nature, a garden. There's another statistic actually which is that it's possible within a garden to grow more variety of plants per square metre than you would find in a rainforest and oh, when fantastic. you take that into account you just think our gardens are more important than ever, they really are and the more that we can do to help them do their best as it were for the wider environment the better. Well, goodbye, Sally. It's really lovely to speak to you. It's lovely to speak to you too, and thank you very much. Sally's book, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way, The Steps You Can Take to Help Combat Climate Change, is out now. And you can find a link to buy it in the show notes. No dig is definitely a theme I've taken from my conversations so far today. Catherine mentioned the importance of not disturbing soil, and Sally also echoed this. So let's learn some more. I like to think of Charles Dowding as the king of no-dig gardening, so he's the best person to speak to to understand how it all works. I grow vegetables mostly, ornamentals and fruit trees as well actually, and my garden at Somerset, homemaker's garden, which is three quarters of an acre. And on that area, I'm cropping one third of it, a thousand square metres with vegetables, which I grow very intensively often two crops a year, and no dig. So I'm leaving the soil completely undisturbed, apart from when we say pull carrots. <laughs> and I'm feeding the soil once a year with a mulch of nice compost. Most of it's homemade, and I'm putting some wood chip in the paths, and the net result of that is very weed-free gardening. It is a very simple principle, it's a simple method. Basically, you leave the soil as undisturbed as possible, which means you just don't put any tools in there, but you you will be skimming across the surface, which is through the compost mulch sometimes to hoe or rake weeds. And the second part is about feeding soil life. It's a respect for the soil and everything that's in there and looking after that amazing panoply of activity going on in the soil and encouraging it by not disturbing it and by feeding it. And the feed in the British climate, I find the best food is compost mulch because that does not harbour slugs. There are many benefits to no-dig gardening and probably the first one that people notice within a few weeks or months of starting is that the weeds do not grow anything like so much. So you have a big reduction in the amount of time you need to spend weeding. Then you have really good moisture retention because you haven't disturb the soil so there's not moisture evaporating where it might have been before plus you've got all the soil network like the mycorrhizal fungi which are hanging on teaming up with roots mutual symbiosis fungi and roots get together and the roots feed the fungi with carbohydrates from photosynthesis and the fungi go foraging for nutrients and moisture so that's another way that you get better moisture result with no dig because fungi can get into crevices in soil which roots cannot access because the fungi are very fine and thin 
So it's a very efficient way of using the goodness that's already in soil to full potential for the plant. While actually you as a gardener are doing less work. And the final one is carbon retention. So you're not disturbing the soil, opening it up to air. So therefore you haven't got oxidation of carbon to carbon dioxide. It's all the carbon is staying in the ground. Starting point for no dig depends largely on how many weeds you have. If you've been digging your plot and you're keeping it pretty tidy, there are not many weeds there, then that'll be really good just to pull any big weeds if there are any, give it a light raking and spread some compost on top. Simple as that. I would recommend between three and five centimetres, one to two inches, just to make enough of a mulch that it's going to stay covered all the time through the coming year. And you, you sow and plant into and through that. And that's your surface feed. Think of it as feeding the soil, not feeding the plant. And I recommend doing that for whatever you're going to grow. So that would include growing flowers, vegetables, whether you're going to grow carrots or potatoes or cabbage or lettuce, because the point is it's about feeding soil. So if you are already gardening and you've got a lot of the knowledge about feeding plants in your head, this kind of take a bit of unlearning really, because it's just looking at the whole thing in a different way. And once you start thinking in terms of feeding soil, you just want to give your soil a bit of food every year. And the beds I give compost, the paths I give wood chip. The problems or mistakes that might happen with this method probably could be to do with weeds. Weeds not being fully smothered. So say cardboard not applied and just putting compost on top of weeds, you will get them growing through. If weeds take over again after your initial mulching, you'll probably give up. So you've got to be efficient and thorough with that initial dose of cardboard if you've got really strong weeds. Possibly another issue could be with compost that if people are buying compost, there's compost of very variable quality and sometimes it's too fresh. It's about compost being fresh enough that it's physically hot actually quite often. If you get that happen to you that someone delivers you a load of compost and it is physically hot, it's best not to use it for at least a month. Let it finish decomposition because otherwise you spread that and then you put your plants in it and they're not going to thrive. They're going to die probably. On my website, there's a long page called Beginner's Guide and that's got a lot of information about starting out and how how to go about it and different kinds of mulches you can use, different kinds of compost that are good to use and potential pitfalls as well, how to avoid them. I recommend anyone to try no dig because for one thing, it's environmental benefit. You're respecting nature a lot more than even if, you know, if you're an organic gardener and you go out and dig and rotate, you're killing a lot of life. That's a fact. So no dig is very respecting of the life that's there already. The micro life, a lot of it that we don't see under our feet. You're working with nature in a very positive way. And in the end, you are going to save yourself a lot of time. It's really great to hear from Charles there. And now on to our Hidden Horticulturist series. And we're looking today at George Washington Carver. I first came across George Washington Carver in the library when I came across a little obituary intriguingly titled The Boy Who Was Traded for a Horse. This man has an amazing life story. He was an early environmentalist and even though he was born a slave, he managed to get an amazing education, encouraged crop rotation in agriculture and developed literally hundreds of uses for the peanut. But let's hand over to a real expert to talk about him. I believe we are a wasteful nation. We throw away too much. We waste too much. We throw away clothes because they go out of style. We throw away plants and flowers because they seem out of place. And most sadly, 
We throw away people because we don't know them or don't understand them. I learned long ago that how far you go in this life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life, if you're lucky, you'll happen all these things. The end quote is about how far you go in this life is Carver's quote, but the rest is part of my play. My name is Paxton Williams, and for nearly five years, I was the executive director of the George Washington Carver Birthplace Association at Professor Carver's Birthplace in Diamond, Missouri. I actually attended the same university that Professor Carver attended. He was the first black student and first black faculty member there. And while I was there, I learned a lot about his story. I took a seminar on his life. And after I learned so much about him, I decided to write a play. It was for a class project. I wrote a one-person play on him. Carver was born around the end of the Civil War. So most sources will say he was born circa 1864. He was born in southwest Missouri on a, a homestead owned by a man named Moses Carver. His wife was Susan Carver, and they owned George's mother, Mary. And George's father, we believe, was a, an enslaved person named Giles, who was enslaved on a nearby farm. Shortly after George Carver was born, he and his mother, they were abducted by these outlaws. Moses Carver wanted to get them back. He hired a man to go search for them. They only found George. They never found out what happened to George's mother, Mary. George was brought back to the Carver homestead, you know, reunited with his brother. Moses and Susan Carver, they took them in. And that's kind of where Carver first learned to appreciate nature. You know, he would go spend time alone in the woods. He would often keep his own little garden, grow things, and people saw that he had a way with plants and flowers. So they would bring the plants and flowers to him to nurse back to health. In addition to being, you know, born in slavery, then losing his mother and his father, you know, before really even knowing them, as he grew up on the Carver homestead, he decided he wanted to learn how to read and to write. And there was a local school, but he and his brother couldn't attend it because of their race. And so he told Susan Carver that he wanted to learn to read and to write. And so she taught him how to read and write. He realized he wanted to learn more. And to do that, he would actually have to leave home. He left the Carver homestead, moved 10 miles away where there was a school he could attend. And he did not know anyone in this town. He found the school and the family who lived next door to the school, they saw him by the school and wondered what he was doing there at that time. And they took him in and they didn't know him. Uh, it was an African-American couple, Mariah and Andrew Watkins, and they took George in. And so that was just one of the earliest examples of Carver believing in himself, taking a chance, going out on a limb and overcoming an obstacle. After he'd learned all he could at the one-room schoolhouse, he left town and he went to a new state, first to Fort Scott, Kansas. In Fort Scott, Kansas, he witnessed a lynching. He would write about that for his entire life, about how that how it really traumatized him. He said, it haunted me then and does even now. So he left Fort Scott, finished school in a town called Minneapolis, Kansas, 
then applied to attend a school called Highland College. He was accepted when he applied by the mail, but then when he arrived, they didn't accept him because they didn't allow people of his race. And so a real challenge. But as we would see later, that didn't stop him from getting an education. He became really well known because of his work with the peanut. That work came about because the boll weevil came around. This was around 1910 or so and started decimating the cotton crops. And Carver knew that he would have to encourage the farmers to plant something other than cotton. But even before the boll weevil came around, those same farmers were seeing reduced yields because the cotton was depleting the soil of all its nutrients. And so Carver realized that he had to encourage the farmers to plant something that would not be attacked by the boll weevil and also to plant something that, if possible, could put nutrients back in the soil. And he knew from his previous research that legumes, you know, peas, beans, pot-bearing plants, that these could do this. And so that's kind of how he became famous. I like to say that Carver used the peanut to address poverty, prejudice, and poor nutrition. Carver was the first person to speak before all white audiences in many locations in the South. You know, he would talk about science, he would talk about his faith, and he would talk about his own story. And people were inspired by his story of perseverance. He helped break down barriers. And he also helped break down barriers because people saw that what he was doing was useful and helpful. And so perhaps some of those people who had racist ideas about black folks not being able to support themselves, he showed all those you know, racist thoughts were lies because he was a person who used his imagination, he used his creativity, he was able to benefit others. Those were the ways in which he helped break down racial barriers. Carver said, my work is that of conservation. Carver didn't believe in throwing anything away. And that's in everything, right? That's in plants and flowers and soil. And that includes people, right? You know, he, he believed that everyone had dignity and value and worth. And so that's why he worked with the farmers that he chose to work with, people who some would say were forgotten by society. He thought, no, they should not be forgotten by society. Uh, we should do all we can to help people live meaningful and fulfilling lives. And so that's, I think that was all part of, of how he viewed his desire to not waste anything. You can read his writings today, and he could be talking about things that happened yesterday. Or if you look at his thoughts on the environment in terms of large factory farms or monocrop cultures, you know, he really sought to find ways to help the land help itself. And, you know, that's why he encouraged crop rotation. The story is so meaningful. People are often inspired by it, both by the examples of perseverance that are in it, but then also in the level of creativity that he allowed himself. He was an inventor. He invented over 300 uses for the peanut. So I think that's also inspiring to people that they say, hey, even if I can't have its magnitudes, if I want to dabble in the arts like he did, I can do that. Paxton Williams. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. 
For more on all of today's topics and how you can be a more carbon conscious gardener, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. I don't know about you, but I found today's show really inspiring. It's really great to think that we can do something positive with our gardens. So often when we're thinking about the environment, we're worried about minimising damage. But I think today the people we spoke to have given us some hints for how we can make real change. And of course, looking ahead, I'm really happy to say we're getting ever closer to spring. So next week's show will be a bumper seasonal advice special. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. And I'm going off to check on my compost heap. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.